Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, looky here, it looks like you're back to listen to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's show features Twitch legend Jay Nandez, who is back with your promised follow-up part two conversation, and you ought to prepare yourself for a relentless onslaught of greatness bombs. Since part one was an exploration of Fernando's poker origin story, and if you missed that episode, I highly suggest you go back and check it out right now. Today, we are going to be going deep, answering some of your favorite Chasing Poker Greatness questions. I don't know why, but I was a little concerned heading into this conversation that Fernando and I would rip through the questions at supersonic speed and leave you with a shortened episode. I ought to have known better. Fernando's philosophy on poker and life aligns so much with my own that I'm pretty sure we could do a weekly episode and never run out of interesting things to talk about. In today's show, you're going to learn Fernando's process for mapping out his days, how he goes about improving his poker game on a daily basis, how he addresses his weaknesses as a poker player, and much, much more. And before you hop into this very special part two conversation, Today's show is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. So without any further ado, I bring to you a very special part two episode with the founder of PLO Mastermind, an all-time great Twitch poker streamer, Fernando J. Nandez Habiger. Good morning, my friend. Fernando, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure having you back um, after only one week, right? Yeah, I feel like I made it into the recall. Like in these casting shows, like week one, we did it, and now uh, I'm on for a second round. Yeah, you, you're, on, you're on to Hollywood. Um, <laughs> this is Hol- <laughs> Hollywood week here on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. So I have some scripted questions that I wanted to ask you, but we got fully absorbed in your story and talking and so a little distracted and I'm perfectly okay with that but I did want to ask you these questions so let's just start out I want to know what were your biggest fears and obstacles that have stood in your path to poker success that's a good question so what comes to mind right away is to identify and also come to come to reality with your weaknesses. Because I think especially poker players, they love to work on their strengths and they love to further improve themselves in what they're already good at, which is to have drive, to be motivated, to grind long hours, uh, to have initiative when it comes to taking your life on, basically from a professional standpoint. But also, myself included, a lot of poker players, they really suck at confronting themselves with the weaknesses they have, which oftentimes people develop throughout their early adult life when they 
pop into the first job. So when it comes to structure, when it comes to balance, uh, when it comes to social relationships or being able to do things such as laundry or doing things such as uh, holding agreements when it comes to meeting another person at a specific time, like all these things I was pretty bad at a few years ago. And my impression of how to quote unquote make it in life was to just keep working on your strengths so that your weaknesses don't matter. But that only gets you this far to the point where your weaknesses are going to catch up with you and become so obvious and so obvious. And that creates a lot of pain in facing those, those weaknesses because changing becomes more difficult the older you get because these habits and the, the mindset behind it already ingrained uh, it, it more itself into your, into your, into your whole uh, being, basically. So for me, at some point, especially working with other people, uh, building a business, I realized I need to work these things out because otherwise I'm, I'm becoming really hard to work with. And I'm also, as it would also be difficult to accomplish things that are outside my comfort zone that are not based on my strengths. So confronting that in the first place uh, was painful to begin with, but also then realizing that making progress in these weak areas is way slower and it feels a lot different than making progress in your, in your strengths. Uh, and confronting that and working on it, I think was something that hold me back for a long time. And, and uh, throughout, especially the last six to eight months, I've been improving a lot in these areas, working with Jared Tendler, for example, on a weekly basis. And I think that's, that's one of the things that not only holds me back, but I think a lot of other people as well, especially in poker. And you mentioned a lot of logistical problems. And it's funny because these are problems that aren't talked about a ton in you know the poker lifestyle, poker literature, poker training, poker learning. And they're often where I spend a ton of time on with my students. It's like, how do you structure your life that is going to give you the best shot of being successful and maximizing your talent, right? And, um, you know, unfortunately, like you said, when we came up, there wasn't a lot of talk on how to structure your life around being an online professional poker player, because like, it was only recently a thing. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't really this lifestyle that was like heavily talked about and stuff. So like, yeah, just structuring your life and figuring out how to do these things and how you work best and putting yourself in a position for success is like, it's so, so, so important. And you can take an otherwise talented, smart, driven poker player who's going to struggle if they don't have these logistical things in place in their life. Yeah, and it sounds maybe for the listener, it sounds when I phrase it this way, like very straightforward, kind of boring. Let me put it into a more like a real life example of myself, what I'm working on currently. So uh, right now, the main things I'm working with Jared is I, I seem to do certain activities that I don't really want to do. So for example, I play poker sometimes when I don't really want to play poker. And I realize in hindsight, it wasn't the best use of my time. So I would regret it then afterwards. And I'm trying to identify why did I do it if I know somehow subconsciously or even consciously that it's not the best choice right now. Like, why do I still do it? And it's pretty complex to unwheel that and understand your mind 
But essentially what it comes down to is that my day is very structured these days because I work with a lot of people. So I work on the schedule. We have a lot of meetings throughout the day. And when I encounter a window, a time window that is free, I sort of think about freedom a lot. Okay, I have four hours. And in these four hours, I can choose what I do. And it's ironic because I basically always choose what I do, but it's just in advance that I schedule it. But that time it isn't, there's nothing scheduled. So now I have to make a decision. And somehow I, I go into this headspace where I'm thinking, what is the coolest thing, the most enjoyable thing that you could do right now? It's going to be playing a poker session. But it's not actually the highest value thing you can do for your life, like from a life quality perspective. And it is mostly because I just indulge into these uh, emotions. I feel like, okay, I, this was a very rigid day. I want to do something relaxed or it's almost dumb, basically. Like I want to do something that is not structured, something that is not productive. But taking scheduled time off and going but to I, I do want yeah, I want to I want to tell you like you just mentioned playing a poker session is not being productive. Like uh, yeah. I, I mean from the context of like what is the context there of this poker session not being productive? Life quality, boring. like what yields the most? Yeah, like what is in, in in alignment with your values and what you're trying to do and accomplish in life essentially? And playing poker. At any point, uh, like sometimes it could be very high value. Sometimes it's low value because maybe you're not in the right mindset in order to do it. Maybe you already had eight hours, 10 hours of work and, and, and mental work. And right now playing poker is a low way to spend your life, a low quality way. And another way, a better way would be to you know, have a glass of wine and sit on the balcony. So that's, that has to be kind of pre-planned for me. Or at least I have to really consider what the value is of each option when I encounter a four-hour window that is free, because otherwise I'm going to make a spontaneous decision. And that spontaneous decision most likely isn't driven by um, a well-thought-out idea or alignment to my values and goals, but it's something more emotional where I'm just like, oh, I don't, I just want to do something that is fun. And then I actually choose an option that is sort of a second, third best option to what would be the most fun, actually, because I haven't really thought about it enough. And I think a lot of poker players, they can identify with them with that because they tend to play way too long. So why are they playing so long? It's kind of an emotional decision. They don't really have another alternative in their minds. And we are starting right now to create this catalog of options of like, how do you use, let's say, a time window of the, the last three hours of your day? What are 10 activities or five activities or three activities that would yield the most value for you in that time frame? And then you can choose. One of them could be read a book. But most of the time, I'm too powered out to read a book. So I'm not going to choose that. But it is an option. Another one could be, you know, watch a documentary on Netflix. So that's like the second tier. And the last one is just like, okay, just do something like watch random stuff on TV, which is still better than playing a two-hour session of poker when you're actually exhausted and you're going to burn out and not be as fired up to play the next session the next day when you would be fully recharged because you chose this, this really bad option in this, in this heat of the moment. Um, so making these conscious decisions and understanding that emotions and thoughts are just that, they don't have to dictate your reality, is something that I'm working on right now a lot in order to understand how do I spend my time the best way, not for financial gains, but for life quality. Yeah, and I mean, that's a greatness bomb that, you know, you mentioned something there too. You mentioned regret. 
having regret for the session, right? What, what happens when you feel regret after you play this session and you're like, ah, wasn't really feeling it, kind of burned out, didn't play well. Well, now you carry that regret around with you for the rest of the day as well which is going to drain your energy. It's going to make you more tired. Maybe your sleep is more restless if it's right before sleep. And it just creates another problem that inevitably comes back to haunt you. And it also builds this underlying storyline of you're not in control. You're not in control of yourself. And, and you confirmed it by taking an action that was sort of driven by your emotions. And if you're not in control, it's more difficult to attribute failure, or even success to yourself. So, so sometimes another thing that I've been working on with Jared a lot is I sometimes tell him, I don't even know how I got this far. I don't even understand, like, how did I, how did I build up what I've built up in terms of my uh, poker career and business career, uh, fitness, like all these things. How did I got, I don't even understand how I got this far. Um, and, and the issue here is that when you don't know how you got there, you might think it's all luck. You might think it might disappear overnight because it's all random, sort of. You don't really know what you have. You don't know what your strengths are. You don't know what you're building on. And it's very hard to replicate that and further build on top of it if you don't even know what you're doing. So we're working a lot on reflection. Wait a moment. You are not here by random, right? Because what did you do last week? How much did you study? How much did you play? How much did you work on your routine and schedule things and... Let's, let's reflect, first of all, and think about how your life actually works and how you consistently improve and get to this point in, in your life. And without that, you might feel a lot of um, anxiety because if you don't think you're in control, then that means you might also just lose it overnight. And I've never thought about things in that way, but that's quite clever and smart. That like, If you don't know the path that you took to get to where you're at, then you don't know how you got to where you're at. And if you don't know how you got to where you're at, you feel like you're on shaky ground because it feels somewhat lucky, just arbitrary. Like I just randomly showed up here, right? So like when, you're, when you encounter these four-hour blocks of free time, do you have like a go-to list of activities for, you know, I guess the time of day that the block comes up? Because I'm sure that has an impact on you know your decision process like how do you map this out currently i'm in the process of just trying to inject more logic when spontaneous spontaneity that's a difficult word <laughs> shows up in my life so i realize hey wait a moment i'm now in free fall so most of my day is not a free fall most of the day is structured but then i hit this zone where i need to realize this is free fall free fall means there's no there's nothing on the schedule you're now free on yourself. And the first thing to do then, the first thing that I would deviate to is to say, okay, what do I want to do? What do I feel like doing? And the first thing that comes to mind, I would just usually do, which is not a good idea. What I'm trying to now change is to think longer about it, inject more logic. It's, it's, it goes all the way back 10 years ago to the mental game of poker one, where Jared Tender introduces the, the idea of injecting logic when you're emotional brain day takes over. And I'm trying to do the same thing. Basically, let's say it's 6pm. And I'm like, well, I really feel like I want to do I want to do something I want to like the day still has a couple of hours left. So what could I do? What could I do that is now fun that is exciting that is something that, that helps me in some ways. And then options will pop up automatically. And you would usually default to what's easiest what's most natural, I can play poker, I know how, how, how it works, it takes me five minutes to go to the computer and start playing. Okay, so, so that's an option. 
but is it the best option? Okay, what is the logic behind it? Well, why is it a good option? Is there another option? So all I'm trying to do is to inject more and more logic and then maybe attribute also some values to it. Well, if I would play poker now, like how is that going to be helpful overall? How is that going to impact tomorrow? How is that going to impact the day afterwards? If I'm going to play until 3 a.m. in the morning, what does that mean for your 10 a.m. workout session? Okay, so that drags down that 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 um, that appointment and and the value of your workout. So it has a an impact um, that follows up in the next couple of days. So like injecting that logic, looking forward is helping me to make better decisions. Then, and and I'm still struggling with it. Obviously, like three days ago, I was in an, in an among us session for like way too long, and I realized in the session why am I still here? Like I had my fun. Like the first hour was great, but now I start to diminish value. The value diminishes because it starts to impact the next day in a negative way. And instead of cutting it off there, I was still engaging for, I would say, two hours more, which, were, which was a bad decision. But the difference now for me is I realize it in the next morning already. And I start strategizing. Why did it happen? How could I avoid it? Where in the past, I would feel a lot more lack of control. I would just wake up and be like, Oh man, I don't really know what happened yesterday. Like I need to get this stuff in order. I'm, uh, I guess I'm playing too many games. Uh, I need a structure. I, I felt lost basically. Where now I can, I can pinpoint more so the issue. Yeah, and in, you mentioned emotions pulling you and kind of leading you to specific decisions when you reach this empty block of time. And I just want to point out that like emotions are driving and pulling us all the time, every day, no matter what we do. And this is like, this is the benefit of structure, right? Like when you have structure, you're less inclined to just, you know, freelance and do something totally unrelated to what you had planned to do because of some emotional impulse. Like when you have this structure, you're like, no, this is what I'm planning on doing. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. In my life, what's interesting about me is that I always thought I hated structure after school and then as a young adult. And then I I realized as I've gotten older that I actually thrive and am so much more productive when I have a structured life compared to when I'm just, you know, freelancing it, waking up and like, oh, what time do I want to play poker? I guess it's going to be like you know, 11 to three. And then after I get after I end my session, I have no idea what is next on the agenda. So it's like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'll watch an episode of The Office on Netflix. And, and it's like, you know, when you have the structure in place, like, I, I'm not going to go lay on the couch and watch Netflix at 3pm, right? Like, I have something else on my agenda. And, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But like, what's the difference between, un, you know, you being unstructured, and then you having this structure in your life. I think you are going to get probably, you move probably to, the, to a similar or maybe same direction. You just get there faster. I think that most people, they recognize pain in their lives. They, they recognize I'm doing something that, that is harming me. For example, not having structure. And they will adjust, but they will usually adjust very slow until and, and only when they are in deep pain. So let's say you are a poker player and you are on an upswing you lack structure, nothing will happen. Like you will not improve your structure at all. There's because there's no pain. It's not enough pain or yeah, it's just like, this is perfect. Right. right. Now you're in a downswing suddenly and you start questioning yourself. Wait, like why, why am I playing bad? Is it, what is, what is missing? I think I need to adjust. So then you adjust, but the issue is you, 
the the goal the goal here is usually to remove the pain instead of to build a, a process or like a system that will always support you. So sometimes people would then integrate a little bit of structure into their lives, but when things go better or sometimes even worse, they just lose the structure because they don't recognize the actual problem, which is you need structure, you need reflection, you need to set priorities, you need to get your life together essentially, and and understand what's important to you, and. And um, that's much easier to do when you work with someone else, like a coach, because you will become reflective in the conversation or the preparation to the conversation about your life. What, what do I want to share? What am I actually working on right now? Am I making progress in the, in the last seven days or not? Most people also ask themselves these questions, but way too infrequently. Uh, so they will progress slower. And then it, 10 years later, they did make some improvements but they could have made these improvements in like two years if they really radically would have worked on themselves and would be not only much more successful because of it, but also much happier. Yeah, and the coach is going to hold you accountable. Like, especially if you're paying money for this coach, you're going to think about how you want the session to go. You're going to show up on time. You know, you're going to be receptive to input. And that's like, even if the coach doesn't even offer amazing wisdom or give you great, uh, a great path, just that in and of itself, getting you prepared and getting you thinking about your how you spend your life, that is a huge upgrade from having no preparation and not thinking about it at all. And uh, you mentioned that a few days ago, you know, you, you played longer than you should and it impacted the next day. And then you had these questions about like, you know, why did I do that? How, how can I do better? I just want to ask, how do you forgive yourself? when something like that happens because i know that like some folks when they're not structured they will have a structure for a few days and then they'll miss a couple of appointments they'll get out of whack and then they just throw it it just goes out the window right it's like they can't forgive themselves they can't just hit the reset button so like how do you go about hitting the reset button and forgiving yourself when you make some a logistical error like that yeah, I think I'm the biggest progress that I have made um, in the last few months is just how long it takes me to reflect about something. It would take me before coaching. It would take me like I would probably sit down once a month and think about how is my life going, how should I or how could I optimize it, and that's usually when I would strategize around these. Oh, I'm playing this too long. I'm doing this too much, and it wouldn't be enough. It's just once a month. Now I got to shorten that to once a week with the coaching because we have a weekly session and I would do it before our session. And so that's improvement because now I'm moving quicker. I'm, I'm adjusting faster. And also if you, if you only adjust your life once a month or for most people, like you set goals once a year at New Year's, it's just not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Time frame there's, is too big. Basically. There's good data. <laughs> there's good data that that doesn't yeah. work. So suddenly I realized that Instead of once a week where I would sit down and reflect on stuff, it would become easier to reflect in the moment or an hour after, just purely based on training and being conscious and aware of it. Okay, I do something right now that is not the best use of my time. How can I, like, why am I doing it? Why am I engaging in it? Like that thought would pop up much more frequent when you train that and become more conscious. If you do it only once a month, it's very difficult to make adjustments in the moment or even a day after. So I'm 
trying to be happy more so with how long it takes me to realize there is an issue and then start navigating around it instead of being too harsh with the mistake itself. It's more, I'm trying to think more about like, what are you doing about the mistake and how fast are you doing it? And trying to praise myself for that instead of being too harsh about that it actually happened. Yeah. And like you said, you know, the, the first step is awareness, just being aware of how you feel. Like if you had no awareness that, that you weren't fully engaged in like hours two through four, then you don't really have anything to reflect on because you don't know that there was any sort of issue. So, you know, the first step is just building awareness of these issues so that you are able to reflect on them afterwards. It also brings me this awareness idea brings me also to this um, airplane, the airplane experience. So a lot of people probably can relate to that. When you're in an airplane and you're not watching the, the movies in the airplane, but you're just sitting in the airplane, a lot of people really enjoy that or in the train because they start thinking and reflecting about their lives, where should things go? And they become hyperproductive when it comes to the macro perspective of their life. And basically what you ideally are trying to do is you're trying to have that feeling, that state of mind more frequent without actually having to hop on a flight. So that's, that's kind of the goal is how can I not be irritated or distracted by social media and, and other current thoughts, for example, uh, what am I supposed to do today? But more so, how can I zoom out on a regular basis and think about if I'm heading into the right direction and doing it the right way? I think that this practice is worth so much more than like anything else you can do in terms of self-improvement. And that's going to come, like for me, the way that I go about it is taking unplugged blocks of my day where I just totally extract myself from computers, social media, my students, the podcast, everything. I just get away and sit with my own thoughts. I, I, I'll never forget. Um, this was a while ago, but I was taking a bath at night and I was like, ah, oh, my phone's almost dead. And then I was looked at the Kindle and I'm like, damn, the Kindle's almost dead too. I'm like, what am I going to read? Like, what, how am I going to stay occupied? Like while I'm taking, and then I just realized like, why are you, why are you avoiding just being with yourself? Like what's wrong with just sitting there with your own thoughts and thinking about life. And, and, and it's like our attention has just gotten hijacked so frequently in today's modern world that we're not even really aware of it, but we don't spend much time with ourselves and our own thoughts and thinking about our lives. And it's, uh, it's pretty sad to me, but like, that's my strategy of just unplugging from everything and just being with my thoughts. How do you go about finding that space on a regular basis? I think, I think the answer is to a large degree coaching. I think that's why coaching is becoming so popular and also very important because it is actually a way for people to un, unplug from the outer world and think more about themselves because they have another person that is interested or is asking the right questions that they should be asking themselves. I am, for example, recently I visited a coaching seminar. So basically a coach who's coaching how to coach. (laughs) (laughs) Meta. And yeah, exactly. And it was in person, which was great. The guy is like 50 years old. He was, is coaching a lot of executives in Germany. And we basically privately booked him like, Six entrepreneurs basically booked him privately on a, on a, in, a, in like a spa hotel for a weekend. And we did like 
two eight-hour days of just like jamming, role-playing, talking to each other, learning from each other. And the idea was everyone is a coach. Everyone can do a better job of listening, asking questions, being reflective, helping others, helping others to understand themselves, basically. That's what coaching comes down to in, in the essence. And if you have friends that understand coaching, they can also coach you in parts of your conversation. So if you go to the bar or you go to a restaurant or you go to the gym and you have friends with coaching skills, it's a huge benefit. You don't have to sit down for a two-hour coaching session or one-hour coaching session. It could also just be one question that you have a friend that realizes, wait a moment, my friend here is struggling with a certain problem. Let me ask him this one specific question so that he can understand himself better. That, that requires skill. And having that around you is extremely beneficial. If you don't have it around you, get a coach. A coach, a trained coach, will ask the right questions that you might not ask yourself to make you understand yourself better. And when you enter a coaching session like that, try to trust the coach. Like just try your hardest to trust them from the get-go. Because just in my experience, like the the more you trust whoever you're paying to help you, your coach or whatever it is, the more progress you make. And like the more time the coach is spending trying to gain your trust and like trying to combat the arguments that, you know, you're making the less impact that you make in your time together. So like trust is directly correlated to impact. So like just trust the process and like give it a week, give it two weeks, give it some time. And if you, if you genuinely believe that you're not making progress, then find another coach, but at least dedicate yourself and fully invest yourself into the process before, you know, before you find another coach or before you give up. How do you sort of like build that trust with your with your students or establish the trust there? So the way that I do it, uh, if it's since it's poker coaching specifically, we do our sessions on ignition, and I have them watch a video or make a video for one hour and narrate their thought process because I don't like doing hand history reviews because like people can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and that's just kind of silly to me. So like it's live play and they're narrating their thought process and how I've gained trust is, you know, it's, it's cumulative, you know, for one, I write my daily newsletter and this podcast where, you know, I talk to, you know, amazing coaches and guys like yourself and that, that builds trust um, from the beginning. But then in the sessions themselves, ignition is like the ultimate, you get to see everybody's whole cards um, 24 hours afterwards. So like, if there's a debate about a hand and I'm like, this guy, you know, here's, here's an instance student comes to me. I don't know much about them. Our very first session together, uh, they raise with Queens villain calls flops, Jack, Jack four, they see bet and villain check raises them big, um, like pretty instantly other opponent folds. And now, you know, this student goes in the tank and he's like, telling me his thought process and all the things he's thinking about. And he ends up folding the flop. Right. And I'm like, look, man, I know these spots are over bluffed. Like they're just, they're just massively over bluffed. Uh, and plus like, l- let's roll back a tape and see how quickly this guy check raised you. Like he check raised you instantly. Right. Like if he's got trips or a boat, like he's going to at least think, should I call? Should I raise now? Should I check raise a turn? How do I play my value hand? And, you know, he was convinced that like this guy is just under bluffing here. And I'm convinced that 
the guy's over bluffing. And even in our coaching session, I'm like, dude, I wouldn't be surprised to see this guy show up with like seven, eight off, like just some random, no equity hand. And then the next day, he gets the hand histories. He gets to see the results. And the villain had exactly five, six off. So like Jack, Jack four rainbow, he just had a complete air ball. And like, this is like first coaching session with a brand new student that earned me like all the trust right there, just in this like one hand history. And there was another hand that was pretty similar to that as well. But like, you know, when, when you can prove that, like, you know what you're talking about. And like, I think that, I think this spot is massively over bluffed and we can just go to the tape. You know, we don't have to argue about theory back and forth. Um, that does a ton as it relates to trust with my poker students. Let me ask you that same question. How, how do you go about building trust with your guys? It's a good question. I think it in coaching, I would say it's, it's primarily trying to really make a genuine effort to understand where the other person is coming from and not talk, like I'm, I'm basically trying to not make myself the center point in terms of this is what I know. Because let's imagine I know out of 100 points, 80 about PLO and the student knows 10. If I would try to show him my 80, it's going to be overwhelming. So I'm trying to make a genuine effort to say, okay, I'm trying to really understand, do you know 10 or do you know 5 or do you know 20? Where exactly are you right now? Because only if I know that, I know how to get to from 10 to 12, from 10 to 15. If he's, if, if he's misinforming me, for example, or he's misjudging his situation and he thinks he's a 50, I'm probably going to say something that is not really going to be comprehended, essentially. So I think asking a lot of questions to make a genuine effort to, say, to understand what is he thinking and why is he thinking that? And how can we change that just by one notch to another, a, a, a little bit of a, a better... So for example... When you play a hand, you ask yourself a lot of questions. What could he have? How could I respond? What should my optimal strategy look like? And by just asking a little bit better questions, um, this person might start realizing that they actually can themselves become better by just changing a little thing. And they don't need that much input from outside. They, they actually have the competence themselves. They just need to make small little adjustments and then a week later, he will probably come around already with some like better questions, more confidence. And I, and I think if they, if they learn that they can improve themselves, uh, even without me after a certain while, I think that then my job is done pretty well. Yeah, and like that's why I love the, the narration videos so much. When people are explaining how they're thinking about a hand, it gives, us, it gives me a chance to see the hand, see how they're approaching poker and like be in their thoughts and be at their paradigm of like how they're thinking about hands. And I call them entry points with my guys. I'm like, cause some people are hesitant to verbalize for a variety of reasons. I think number one is fear. They don't want to sound stupid or look stupid. And, and so I'm like, you know, these, these verbalizations create entry points for me to find out where you're at, exactly where you're at in your thought process and where we can enter to make improvements based on where you're at. Cause like you said, just having like a curriculum for everybody across the board has always struck me as like wrong in poker because you, you, you want to approach guys like on the paradigm that they're at. Like, I don't want to coach a guy that's like a pro a five ten pro in the same way that I'm going to approach somebody who's like a wreck coming at this as a hobby who 
really doesn't know much about about the game at all. So like, yeah, I mean, creating those entry points and the verbalizations, like just figuring out where guys are coming from is so beneficial because then all of a sudden you start foreseeing like the next steps they ought to take or put them on a path of homework so that, you know, they can think about the things that are necessary and important for them specifically instead of like, you know, just a general, some general homework thoughts. Absolutely. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. I want to ask you, what does your process look like? for regularly improving your poker game? That's a good question. I would say I, I'm trying to think about the game tree a lot. So the game tree, when I'm talking about the game tree, I mean, you know, the early position, RFI, button, three-bit versus cutoff, uh, double barrel turn, in position, in single race pot. Those are like all different parts of the game tree. And um, let's say you're double barreling turn in a single race pot, we're talking about flush transitioning turns. So like that's, uh, that's one part of the game tree. And I'm trying to understand which parts of the game tree are especially valuable to your bottom line 
they occur often, parts are big, people make large mistakes, which means you have big edges if you study them, these spots well. And once I identified such a spot, I'm trying to build out uh, data. So data in terms of research data. It could be population data. It could be um, solver data, outputs, uh, aggregation reports. So for example, a basic example would be um, you see about the flop in position and I'm playing PLO, the turn is a flushing card. Like how do you approach this from a sizing perspective, from a range perspective? How do I learn more about this spot essentially? And, and the answer usually lays in going more macro, which means I need to see all flush turns. I need to see non-flush turns. I need to see what the top of my range looks like and his range to understand what's the concept here. Are we betting one third? Are we betting larger? Are we using two sizings? Why is the solver using two sizings? Do I want to use two sizings? Is this implementable? I'm starting to ask myself these questions in order to build a strategy in this part of the game tree. And then once I have better data, I make a decision on, okay, for me, this spot plays like this. I'm going to use one sizing and I'm going to play my full range for one third. And the reasons, and that's the most important part, are this, this, and this. And these reasons are based on certain concepts that I have verified through the data set. For example, I'm betting one third full range. And the reason is because my range is, I have such a big range advantage that doesn't uh, manifest itself in polar polarity, but more so in equity, in raw equity terms. So I can bet my full range for one third and challenge my opponent's uh, bottom of his range, like one per holdings, for example, that he needs to continue with a certain frequency because of the products he's getting. So that's like the concept behind it. I would extrapolate it, understand it, trying to see how I would want to implement it and then move forward. I might add at the top at the end, um, I might like add me researching hands in this particular spot I played in the past to see how did I consciously or subconsciously approach this in the past and what am I changing now given the new researches that the new the new research I put in. And once you have like once you run the Pio Sims and you get an idea of like a theoretical theoretically what guys ought to be doing. Do you do any mass database analysis like on yeah. the specific population to figure out like how guys are misplaying versus, you know, one third versus three fourths. And then trying to basically like the way that I think about it is like we run the Sims, we have the baseline strategy, and then we figure out how guys are screwing it up and what's the most natural way that they screw it up. And then art, we craft our strategy on putting them in that spot where they're likely to make mistakes and you can prove it through mass database analysis because you can see what the population tends to do. Absolutely. I think that most regulars, so I play, I play primarily against regulars, I would say. And I mean, I wish it would not be the case, but I, I mean, it's mainly against regulars. So most regulars have seen the same videos and videos are basically shallow representations of someone's understanding of the game. Like the guy that makes the video shows a very small fraction of what he is doing and an even smaller fraction of why he's doing it. So we have all sort of the same base level information about how certain spots are generally approached. And when I look into the solver, I even without mass data analysis, I usually identify spots that I think are hard to play. For example, oh, when we check here, we're supposed to continue 50% or 60%. That seems pretty difficult for me to do. Like, what, how do I do this even? And if it's difficult for me, it might probably be difficult for other players as well. So then if I identified that, for example, overfolding here is pretty common for me, I might look into the database and say, okay, how often are people generally overfolding? It seems like other people are struggling with it too. So what does that in return mean for 
exploiting this on both ends in terms of betting more often, but also continuing more often from the passive end of side. Uh, so the, the deviation is, as you say, uh, oftentimes where all the gold lays. And it doesn't even mean you need to like max exploit people with like ridiculous line. It just means that you need to solidify your understanding of certain spots a little bit better to the point where you understand common mistakes that a lot of people make and how to subtly exploit them throughout the board. And given how many hands you play, especially in online poker, it's pretty easy to then compound that it compounds very easy. If you have like 10 spots in the game that show up frequently and you gain a few fractions of a big blind here and there all the time, it just compounds basically. And common is a very key word there when you're looking to improve your poker game and you're looking to, you know, invest like what you just said you're investing a lot of energy and a lot of willpower into figuring out these spots so find common situations that do impact your win rate when you decide to go deep into studying and typically it's going to be a little earlier in the game tree so like you're not going to be going nuts on like these crazy river decisions that happen once every millennium it's spots that happen all the time like you know something like sea betting versus fish right like fish tend to play too many hands pre-flop therefore you're sea betting very often against fish like what boards should you be doing it how are they reacting like you need to know these spots just inside and out so that you can maximize um you know maximize ev and increase your win rate and like that's how you do it it's these very frequent situations the common spots that are played just over and over and over again understanding where guys are going wrong where you're going wrong and how to improve also a common example like i am that i want to mention is i played a hand i think two days ago where i squeezed from the big blind or from the small blind with aces, I'm talking about Piolo, like aces, XX, basically. And the flop comes king, jack, jack, rainbow. So it's a pretty dry board. But my opponents are generally going to have more boats and trips in, on this board. There was $1,000 in the pot. And the way most people run sims there, myself included, is to bet like one-third, maybe maybe like 25% of the pot with some of your hands and then check. And I decided to bet uh, only a tenth of the pot. And the reason I did this is because I think that the strategy for my opponents to react to the sizing is pretty difficult. It's, it's a pretty difficult, like you will have to continue with a lot of hands that you're not comfortable with doing that with. So even though the EV in a perfect GTO world might be lower using the strategy, you're challenging your opponents more because no one is doing what you're doing there. And it, they, they are more likely to make a mistake because they haven't seen the sim for facing the sizing, essentially. They don't know. They have to freestyle, essentially, what they're going to do then. Yeah, and uh, that that is a greatness bomb because that is like, you know, you're creating a, a situation where you realize villain's defense frequency is unnatural. So, like, when it's unnatural and it's an understudied spot and they have to freelance, that is a great recipe for screwing up the situation because you just don't know, Right. Um, so like putting, putting opponents in unnatural defense spots is another great way to earn extra gold while you're playing this game. Because like, if they haven't studied it and it, and it, and it's like not natural, right? Like, you know, there are spots in Hold'em where it's like the flops nine, four deuce and you check raise and villains are supposed to continue with like queen 10, uh, backdoor flush draw. Like they just don't do it. 
it's just not a part of their continuing range. And they don't understand that like, it, you know, it's just not natural. And, and if you do it on like, you know, whatever it is like ace king four, then you check raise. Well, it's pretty easy for villain to naturally defend that spot because they just call when they have like an ace and likely a king and just fold everything else. So it's like just putting opponents in situations where it's not intuitive. The, the way forward is not intuitive. And, you know, the beauty of poker is that it's a very complex game and there are plenty of these spots to be found if you're willing to do the work and investigate and see where they're at. When you think about joy, in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? That's also a great question. Mm, certainly streaming. Like streaming is a lot of fun for like several reasons. It's just uh, streaming kind of reminds me of playing live poker in some ways because when you express yourself, like when you're fired up, there is added value where if you play by yourself online, I mean, you don't really get fired up like on a stream or even in live poker, like you talk to people, you make jokes, you slow roll them or whatever it is. Like you, there's stuff that happens in social engagements that, that, that make the game better, more fun, more joy. And I, th I think it's actually kind of similar when you stream because you share the moment with others. And it's also a little bit more of a show uh, in, in the sense that, Let's say you're all in in a tournament and um, you're sweating the cards, like you're sweating the cards together. And yeah. the way you do that is way different than just by yourself. So I think that's, that's, that's definitely very joyful um, to do. And maybe the other thing is just the deep research. Like a lot of people struggle with the methodology of studying the game. They just don't know what they're supposed to do. They look at a hand and they're like, well, I mean, how do I find good arguments for either side basically and i struggled with that as well like especially in 2013 or so 14 i was watching a lot of coaching videos or like playing explain videos and they didn't help me to study the game they just helped me to like see someone else play but then when i look at a hand myself and i'm trying to make arguments for or against whatever line i would be pretty lost that was very frustrating i didn't know what to do should i go into hold a manager and research stuff back then there was no plo solver and it got me into this road of exploration. How do I make sound arguments? Should I read mathematics of poker? Should I look into how other big poker players are arguing for and against hands? What are they talking about? They're talking about equity distribution. They talk about position. They talk about stack size. Like all these arguments, these pillars, essentially. And what's joyful to me is that after all these years in research, these tools kind of combat, compound and become even stronger to the point where you actually see a hand and you have a really good understanding of how you get to sound answers. Okay, I need to run this sim and this sim. I want to compare this database analysis and this. You know what you should do to get to a certain point of understanding. And that feels just really powerful um, because you, don't, you, feel in, you feel in control of your, of your destiny and your output. Or before I felt more like I'm a little bit lost. I'm not sure if what I'm doing even makes sense or is going to improve my game. Yeah, and play and explain videos are like the worst for that because yeah. as somebody that's made, you know, over a hundred of them, I can tell you that like if you've ever watched a Phil Galfon play and explain video, for instance, you'll he will talk about one decision for like 15 minutes straight. And like even when he is doing that, there are still thoughts and data points that are getting filtered out in from his mind to his verbalization that like you just don't know. So 
you know, watching a play and explain video and then trying to apply concepts in spots where like, you don't know how the creator got there, A, and B, you don't even know that it's right. Like, so, yeah. you know, you could be following a path that is like wrong, um, not knowing even how they got there, much less fact checking, you know, what, what they did. And like, yeah, they're easy to make uh, at, from a content creator's perspective, but I don't know how valuable they are as like pure training material conceptually because like so much stuff gets filtered out that like you you see what they do, but you don't necessarily know how they do it. it I actually think that like playing explains are more valuable for higher level players than they are lower level players because at least a higher level player, somebody does something that's like totally outside of the norm. I can kind of look at that and think about it and reverse engineer like what I believe their thought process was to get them to that point and then investigate and try to figure it out. But like, if you're, if you're lower level, you just, how are you going to go about doing it? You just can't. That's, that's a really good analysis there because what, what we have found in the PLO mastermind is that the higher level players. So we have one course that is called crushing PLO 2k and basically um, Schuller, the coach plays PLO 2k. It's just, it's just a plain explain. There's no theory. It's just him playing. And the feedback was, I want to see more playing explains because I, I'm as a high as a high stakes player. I'm running these sims myself. I, I can do this all myself, but I want to see the meta. I want to see how you what you do that it's not in the sim, in the playing explain. But they know the sim, and that's the key difference. If you're a beginner, you don't know the baseline at all. So you look at something and you might emulate it, but in your environment, it doesn't make any sense, or you don't even know why you're doing it. You don't know how to follow up. Let's say you see, you, you see myself, I'm betting one ten on the path in a certain spot. Okay, but ha- you, you might do the same thing, but how do you play the turn? How do you play the river? And what are the reasons for it? You might have no clue because you're just emulating something that you don't fully understand. So you need to know the baseline, first of all. And rather than taking the exploit, which is the one ten, for example, in this case, you are better off sticking to the baseline because you know at least what you're doing when it comes to the turn and the river because you have studied this baseline. So you need a foundation first. And as you said, as you get better, you become really interested to see how other people put it into practice and start deviating. Yeah, because then you, you see the deviation. You're like, holy shit, that was amazing. Yeah. I want to I lo- learn that. I want to look at that. Um, it's really hard, man. It's really hard as a beginner starting out in the poker world, just building a foundation from zero. You know, It's a really difficult path. And it's something that almost everybody underestimates the difficulty level of doing it. It's a, it, it takes a long time to build a solid foundation that allows you to find success playing cards um, over the long term. Would you, would you say that starting out with or without solvers is better as a, as a beginner? Uh, without, for sure, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say without and just really just as a beginner, I mean, it starts with language for me. This is what I've noticed. Uh, the, the key difference in my lower level players and the higher level players is the language that they use to describe what they're thinking about and to describe the problems that they're encountering. So like for me, everything begins in language, like let's upgrade language first so that we're all on the same page conceptually. And that like, when I say something like, you know, I'm going to float the flop. We're all on the same page as to what this means and why I'm executing this strategy. So like, 
you know, just starting from the foundation of language and then logic and thought process, I think is vastly more important than the solver work. Because if you understand theory and you understand like what folks ought to be doing and then the logical deviations from strategy, you can actually have a game that beats low stakes. Like you can beat low stakes with that foundation in mind. And then from there, once you have the language and you understand what's going on and you get the logic of it, then you can fire up the solvers and then you know what you're looking at. You know what to take away, you know, the, the right inputs. So like, you know, you're asking the solvers specific questions. So like you understand like what you're looking at, what to ask, and the information is meaningful. Um, that's my, that's my take on it. What's your take? I like it. I like language as a, as a primary objective um, and language and concepts, right? Which is, what is equity? What is position? How does it play into it? What is um, equity realization? Why is that important? Why is stack size important? Like all these, these foundational pillars, because without them, you won't understand at all what a solver is doing anyway. Uh, because if a solver bets full range one third on the flop, it's all because of these basics. It's all because of equity, position, realization. And if you don't understand what that means, then you are just trying to memorize something you don't understand. And memorization is, is not really the key to poker at all, um, at least not the way I look at it. In PLO, it doesn't work anyway because there are too many combinations to do that with. So conceptually, I would also say you want to start conceptually and then see how that, how these concepts play out in a, I would say in a GTO world. So let's say, for example, in No Limit Hold'em, you would look at a prefab chart and say, how do you construct your three betting range from the big blinds? Okay, in the tournament, there are like 20 big blinds, you like three bet shove, or let's say 30 big blinds, you three bet shove right away all in with certain hands, you three bet smaller with other hands. I mean, look at the chart. You need the language to understand why are we shoving, I don't know, king seven suited all in directly? Like what, what, is, the, what is the reason right there? In order to understand, you need, you need to attach a concept to the, the grit, essentially, is what it comes down to. So that's probably how it would go next. And then just spin it, spin it off from there, essentially. Yeah, and it's you, you don't know the why. Like, you don't know. You, you can run a solve, and it's like, bet one-third with your range. Like, if you don't know what's fundamentally going on, then, like, you don't know why. And you don't even know that, like, the solver could be making false assumptions about the pool that you're playing against. And if you were to node lock this situation, like one third is not the path that the solver would choose. So you don't even gain the ability to deviate because you don't know what you're looking at. Um, so yeah, like you, you just have to have a, a fundamental understanding of theory and the game itself. I think before you can, you know, successfully or efficiently use solvers. It, it's like, I, I, I love, what solvers have done with introducing baseline strategies. But on the flip side of that is they're very dangerous when they give people this false sense of security or false sense of confidence that they're making great decisions. When the reality is you're making decisions based on a solver that might not be very great versus the exact population that you're playing against. Yeah. Solver makes a lot of assumptions and they, they can throw the, the whole output out of the window for me, solvers or PLO solvers were absolutely a blessing. And I think it is because of what you said also before. I already knew the foundation, the foundational things. So I was already playing poker for 10 years before looking into a PLO solver because that's when it was, was released. So I sort of hit my cap of natural understanding of math, 
in conceptual things. Like I, I couldn't get much further because I didn't have that talent. But then the solver introduced another layer of effort. Like you could put a lot of effort into the solver and just get really good without being extremely talented at math or combinatorics or these more sort of like mathematical pokers, old school kind of skills. So a good example could be something like, you know, a Ben Solsky, who's like extremely talented also with Sims, but also outside of it before that already. And then maybe, uh, you know, OTB, Linus Love, like these guys, they came up in the solver area and they, they probably don't have the same skill set as, as Ben Solsky. They have a, a, probably another skill set that excels especially well with the solver work that you have to do. And they might not have been as good without solvers and the other way around as well. So the people that strived in the full tilt days, they probably, I mean, you can exchange these names if a solver would have already been out there by then. And what's, what's interesting, when I first got introduced to a solver, the, my first thought, the first feedback that I ever gave somebody when they showed me what it was doing was like, I don't like this. I don't agree with this output. Yeah. Like this doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. And so that was like, I was dismissive of them. Like pretty straight away. I was like, this does not, this is not going to perform as well as the strategy that I'm executing at the tables. I don't know what this output is. So yeah, I'm, I'm very skeptical. Right. Like it was only le- until later when I realized like what the solver is actually doing that it has like an unexploitable strategy versus an exploitable strategy. And then it's just exploiting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until it reaches, you know, this point of equilibrium that I realized like, oh, so that's what the solver is doing. And that's why it said to take this strategy. And basically intuitively what I had been doing is node locking specific parameters against the population I'm playing against and developing my own strategy that is the highest EV and it, it, it gives you clarity in, at points in the decision tree that are intuitively more difficult to understand, right? Like that, that to me is like a huge benefit of the solver. It's like, you know, you, you reach a point in the decision tree where it's just like question marks. And you're like, what does like good strategy here? What, is, what the hell does it even look like, right? And then you run the solve and this gives you an idea where you start, you know, adding in some information to these question marks on the decision tree. And then when you have that information, the foundation of knowledge there, then you can navigate just a little bit better. And then once you get through that spot and you know what should ought to be happening optimally, you start seeing things like, oh, guys, when they face this spot in my pool, they're reacting totally different than what the solver said. What does this mean about deviation and exploitation? So like it even gives you a thing to look for while you're playing cards, um, which you know is another massive benefit to using solvers. Yeah, when when the solver released in PLO, the first thing I looked at were four betting ranges preflop, because in PLO, the general consensus was you four bet aces and like really other good cards like ace king king double suited and whatnot. And then I looked at the four betting range and it was like what like ace nine eight seven double suited four bets jack ten nine seven double suited four bets. So you look at what you say is. Comp- it's, it's basically good strategy. What does good strategy look like? What does is, what is, um, competitive strategy look like? It is to four-bet hands that balance out your aces. Okay, so if people are not willing to do that, what does that mean then for me as a three-better? And in PLO, one of the, the biggest sort of, one of the things mm. you should pay a lot of attention to is to not be three-betting kings when your opponent 
and you, if you three bet kings, like kings is a very good flat as well. But if you three bet and your opponent four bets you, you oftentimes have to fold and give up a lot of chips, uh, like twelve big blind investment or something like that. So it's a big inequity. investment. Yeah, yeah, inequity. You're just gone. Like you just fold. But if your opponent only four bets with aces, then you three bet these kings because he doesn't put in the jack ten nine seven that you shouldn't fold against if you would see this hand. And you would exploit him by squeezing out thinner value by three betting these marginal hands. It's like probably similar in holding. Like if you, I don't know, if you have a king queen suited and you play against the recreational, you don't. He's you know he's not four bet bluffing you. You obviously three bet him, so he can call you with jack ten and seven six suited and whatever, and you can perfectly isolate, squeeze out thin value. But against a good rack, you have to be a lot more careful. What if he four bet bluffs you? What are you going to do with king queen? Like so, it gives you as you said a lot of good ideas about where are people. Weak, weak, basically, or not weak, but where they're not applying GTO, and how does that make them attackable? If you play against the rag, and he's not willing to four bet you white, you will three bet him very thin, and he, until he starts doing it, essentially, and you're gonna win in that battle because you do that. I love that. That I mean that that's great because it like it makes total sense. Guys are under under four bet bluffing, therefore we get to start three betting kings, knowing that like when they do four bet us. They have aces most of the time. I mean, and then they're also going to call when they're we have domination pre-flop. And we know that, like, when they flat, uh, typically, like, what that range is likely to look like and what boards hit it. And, yeah, that's uh, – yeah, that's, that's – I love that. Um, and that's just, like, super early in the decision tree, right? Like, this is just, yeah. like, pre-flop three-betting strategy. Again, very common spot happens very often in every single poker session that you play so it's going to make the biggest impact just um, to spin that further because i just want to see like how applicable it is for people on the flop in a three bet pot in plo the caller of the three bet if he's out of position he needs to lead the flop like there are certain flops you need to lead 40 percent of the time 30 25 percent of the time if you don't lead you allow the imposition player to over realize their equity and just check behind so if I know my opponent does not have a proper leading range in a three-bet pot, I can three-bet even wider because it's going to give me the free turn card on top. So like it compounds over time. Okay, I play against the player. He doesn't want to four-bet wide enough. He doesn't want to lead the flop because he doesn't use this as part of his strategy. The mistakes compound over, over the streets. And it's a really good example of how you use the knowledge of GTO to exploit someone. Yeah, because that's where the money is. Like the money's in the exploitations. The money is not just in right. like doing what the solver tells you to do um, in the moment. But I want to ask you the opposite question. When you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I would say expectations. It's like high expectations of, of um, what you're able to do. One of the things I encountered a lot is this, this one thought, which is, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people that are pretty intelligent, think that they are a genius, but they're not, and that actually eats them up, essentially. And I never thought of myself as a genius, but I thought of myself as something with potential. And this idea of potential is pretty dangerous because it's non-tangible. You don't know what potential means. Potential in what? In playing or teaching or business or applying yourself in whatever way. It's so intangible, but it builds up expectations. And the more expectations you have, and these expectations are not even directed to something. It's like, oh, I wanted the best PLO player because I have potential. Well, that, I'm not sure that's the right way to approach it, but a lot of people, myself included, would do it this way. Um, it's only worthwhile to pursue PLO if you want to be the best. 
hmm, so that sounds like a lot of uh, expectations that are not going to be met. And that is very painful when you realize you were not going to meet them. And you thought of yourself as something more than, than you are. But the reality is, I think the biggest tragedy of it is that you could have been more if you would have be if if you would have been more reflective about becoming the best version of yourself instead of trying to become the best at something you're not. Yeah, you you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say expectations are rough and anytime that I've had expectations in poker, whether whatever it be, I've always fallen flat on my face. Whether it's like I'm going to play 100,000 hands this month and yeah. I'm going to win, you know, 30k like I always crash and burn with these expectations. It's like at some point, I think I just start showing up to play cards, but I'm not like fully prepared. I think that like just showing up is good enough. Like it's not good enough to like be a great player. You actually have to, you know, be a great, make great decisions in your sessions. Like you're not just going to win because of this expectation that you've put on this, this monthly goal and um, becoming the best version of yourself. You know, that's the only tangible measurable goal that you can make and it's the only thing that makes sense like you can't if you're like i'm gonna be phil ivy like what does that even mean what is phil yeah. ivy and how did he get there and like it doesn't mean anything right so like always working on yourself what what i have or what i suggest folks do as far as you know measuring where you're at is just make a play and explain video for yourself like just just make one a week every Monday and then th go back three months and watch your first one and just see like the progression, right? Because it, sh it ought to be tangible. You ought to be able to say, wow, I've really progressed over these last three months. Again, going back to what you said earlier, um, it gives us a path, right? It shows us that we're on a path where we are progressing and we're not just going to wake up one day and, and be like, how did I get here? This, this ground feels very shaky and fragile because it could all disappear. Um, you know exactly how you got there, the steps that you took and where you were at and what you're working towards. Yeah. And write down, what are you good at? What are you bad at? Maybe you're like, maybe you are um, bad at ending sessions on point or planning them ahead of time. So write that down and trying to improve on that by having, you know, structured sessions, like a one, one small goal. And, and the thing is like in this social media pressured world, it's much easier to like create this fictional, like this fictional self of yourself in the future and say like, I'm going to be rich or I'm going to be this and that. And it's a lot more lame to think about, well, I'm pretty bad at starting my session on time. Let's fix that. That sounds <laughs> way, way, way worse than like, I'm going to get a Lambo and be rich. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's, I'm, I'm convinced you get way much, way more dopamine thinking about the Lambo than you do about how to start your session on time. Um, it's more fun, right? Uh, imagining these big dreams and these big goals when like, what's funny is that when you start imagining how to show up on time and you start showing up and how do I improve and how do I track this? That's when you get to the Lambo eventually over time. Exactly. Um, What's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? I would say probably this idea of like playing a lot to get a lot of experience. 
I think that the reason most people don't succeed in poker is because they're just not good enough at it. They're just like, they just don't understand the game good enough. They don't have, they, they, they think that the game has, I don't know, a depth level of 100 when it has like a depth level of 10,000. And they feel like they're at like 90. Like, I already know a lot. I just need to play more. I need to grind. No, you don't. You're not good. Like, you're not that good. You're just not. You don't understand much about the game. You don't know about population. You don't know about turn and river. You don't know about exploits. There's so many things you could figure out if you would take time off playing and actually study the game and applying yourself and, and developing these off-table skills. But you don't because you don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy the idea of poker strategy that much. You like the idea of playing and you want to win, but you don't want to really be good at the game. And you don't get really good at the game by playing. You get really good at the game by studying and then applying yourself in a game fashion. And I I imagine it like a factory, right? Like just this, uh, this line where you're making whatever widgets, um, and, and it's going through this process and then being exported from the factory. Like if the processes in place are not perfect, then you're just going to keep replicating shitty widgets that aren't very valuable. And like, that's what experience does. Unless you go back and look at the individual processes, the individual machines that are putting these parts together, then that's when you, you start thinking about scale, right? Like when you realize I'm making money with each hand that I play, and I'm very confident in that because I have a th- good theoretical understanding. Then it's like, yeah, let's go full blast on, you know, in this factory and pump out as many widgets as possible. But until you get that in place, like all you're doing is harming yourself by, you know, playing a lot of hands shittily and playing a lot of hands at close to zero EV or even negative EV. Like you have to fix those problems else you're just done and you're not going to progress in your poker career. Yeah, exactly. If, if you have like an entry-level job at, a, at whatever grocery or whatever, like how do you get to the manager position? Not by grinding 10 years in the, in, like you have to go out there, <laughs> yeah. right? Off, like not, in, like you have to go out and study and then you move right away to the manager position. But if you just keep grinding, and that's why I a little, have a little bit of a, not a problem, but I am, when I hear someone talk a lot about like, hustle and grind, I oftentimes can't stop thinking that the person is not that effective in what they're doing because we are all hustling and grinding. We're all working hard. A lot of people in this industry, in other industries, they're all working hard, but I'm much more interested in people that work smart and they think about leverage. They think about network. They think about managing themselves and their business instead of just doing the task and when someone talks about these subjects, I know, okay, these guys can go a long way. But if you're just like a hard worker, I mean, then you're just that. As you said, you're just producing the same thing over and over again. And the result is obviously going to remain the same. And you're not going to, like, you're not going to, if you want to move up in stakes in poker, it requires like a lot of effort. It, it requires a ton of additional knowledge in order to do that. And you're just not going to gain it just by playing these days and, and just hoping that you somehow in three months, you're just so much better in this game because you're not. You're going you're gonna to approach most of the spots exactly the same you approached them three months ago because you haven't reflected, studied, and worked on them and changed your strategy. How do you change your strategy? You change it off table and then implement it. 
Exactly. Like just because you've played many hands doesn't mean you've thought about those hands deeply. Doesn't mean you've thought about the game a ton. And like going back to the, my little factory analogy, it, it's such a subtle thing because like you need to know like, okay, your factory is like churning out products, but at what point do your machines start overheating and then play starts degrading, right? Which is gaining awareness of self and when, you know, my decisions are, you know, going down a level because I'm mentally fatigued, I'm tired. Like how long can you go? It, it, all these subtle little things that you really have to know in and out about you as a human being before, you know, you dive full in and can even create a logistical plan that is going to prepare you for success playing this game. All right, I got a couple more questions and uh, hopefully they'll be <clears throat> fairly brief. I think these are these are fairly brief ones. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? And it doesn't have to be specifically poker. It would probably be, if you're a professional poker player, it would probably be Deep Work by Cal Newport. I think that's a pretty good book. Or Gary Keller, The Power of One Thing, something like that. Yeah, The One Thing. Yeah, yeah the <clears throat> focus on doing the one thing that makes everything else easier or unimportant the archimedes lever extremely Leverage. extremely good book i've read it multiple times now if you could wave a magic wand change one thing about poker what would it be kindness just people being nicer to each other and understanding the difference between competition and like on the felt and how important collaboration and being kind to each other off the felt really is it would do so much it's I think we're doing a lot of harm by by creating all this drama and attack in the poker world and putting a lot of light into the negative. Not only for, I'm not even speaking about growing poker or not growing poker because of it. I'm talking about just like harming individuals in there and, 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 and basically exposing them to a lot of toxicity when it's not necessary. Because poker is already sometimes a quite lonely journey because you're playing for yourself. You're not playing for a team or a group or a company. So you need to find peers. You need to find people that believe in you. And that's not that easy as if you were to work together on like a business. So I think being kind to each other and supporting each other off the felt in this regard to how hard you go after each other on the felt is something that is still missing. And uh, it would be really nice if that would improve. I agree. And I want to expand just a little bit in this kindness area. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself when you make a mistake or what you feel is a mistake. Just have compassion for yourself because we all get in this mode of perfection seeking and we want to play perfectly and we don't want to make any mistakes. And like, just forgive yourself, be kind to yourself and realize you're a human being who is going to make mistakes and that's okay. All you can do is do the best that you can next time. Um, because I, I think that, that being unkind to yourself is what leads to a lot of burnout. It's what leads to a lot of jaded feelings about the path of poker in the long run. So yeah, I, I, I'm 100% with you. Be kind to the folks in the arena, the creators, the people who are just trying to do their best, and also be kind to yourself as well. If you could wreck the billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does it say? That's that's a, a really difficult question, like one universal message. But honestly, I think it probably should be the same one, you know, 
be, you know, be more kind basically to yourself and others. Also the casino environment is also an environment that obviously brings in or brings together different kinds of people, like no other place almost like you can, you can find different people from different age groups and different backgrounds. And, 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 and I think it's not always easy to, yeah, connect and be nice to each other. Right. It makes poker better if you are social and if you are, are kind to each other, it makes the whole industry better. It makes you go home and feel better about the whole experience in itself. And and sometimes I have the, I mean, on some trips, I, I sometimes think people head to the poker table as like a ATM. I'm going to go to my ATM. I'm going to like play my game. This is all about me. I'm going to withdraw some money. My EV, I'm going to print my EV. I'm going to destroy these other players. And then I go to my little room and count my chips or my money. That's like, you're not going to be very happy with this mindset. And there's so much more out there that you will... <clears throat> that you can benefit from when you are on the poker table by talking to people and building connections that is not necessarily financially going to reward you, but it could, but specifically from an, from a happiness perspective. So when you go ahead and play poker, don't just seek the money. Like there's so much more to gain. And if you only make it about the money, I think you're not going to, you're not going to end up as happy and maybe also pretty resentful in, in the poker industry. For sure. Like you're playing with human beings. You're spending a lot of energy at the casino, like 40 to 60 hours a week. It's okay to enjoy the experience of being there and talking to human beings, right? Like that's actually the preferred way to go about it is like have a fun experience because then you have a fun experience. And hopefully if you're a profitable poker player, you will make money in the long run as well. But like, it's really sad to me to just think about these people that just try to be robots and show up and spend 40 to 60 hours of their lives sitting there without engaging. And like the thing about poker too, is all walks of life. Like you will meet billionaires. You will meet some of the most successful people on planet earth. And like, you can engage with them and start talking and create relationships and like ask them wisdom in areas of your life that are unrelated to poker and they're more than happy to give you feedback and help you out and like you can help them out with poker it doesn't have to be like this one-sided you know it's a relationship where there's give and take and like enjoy the journey enjoy the process because what's the point if you spend ten thousand hours of your life playing cards and all you're in it for is the money it's such a waste of time. It's just such a, you could do other things with your life where, you know, you're, you're not going to be happy, but you make more money, but just like, yeah, just be happy. Realize you're having an experience and, you know, immerse yourself in that experience. What's a project you're working on right now. That's near and dear to your heart. Last time I said, I'm, I'm really working hard on creating a, a great culture in our company we are right now 15 people from all sorts of different countries uh, and we are different age groups have different backgrounds and uh, we have really, really something special going on. And I'm working hard towards creating a place that enriches people's lives that are collaborating in this, in this business. Another thing that I'm working on a lot as well, is just my relationship with poker and I'm playing poker since 15 years and since 10 years professionally. And there are, there are ups and downs. Like you're not always super motivated. You're not always dialed in to give it your all. 
And I learned a lot about poker strategy in the last five years because I was producing so much content. But I struggled to understand what po- what role playing poker and what what role playing poker takes in my life. And there would a lot of pain would result out of that because sometimes I would play very little poker because I was unsure if poker has a place in my life. Then I would play too much trying to force poker into my life. And throughout the last six to eight months, I've been working a lot on my mental game and also a lot on that relationship. And now I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm enjoying poker as much as never in the last five years because I'm, I understood why I'm playing poker, what, what the objective is, what motivates me, what it gives me, and also how I can get it, which means I need to play in the right frequency at the right times when it makes the most sense in the right state of mind. And, and that happens multiple times a week, but I need to find the right balancing act. And, and I'm getting very close to where I want to be. And I feel extremely excited about that. And I think it's a topic a lot of people that are in poker for a longer time should really think about what priority and place does poker play in your life and how can you optimize for it? Man, I love that. I love that answer. And again, it goes back to logistics, right? Like logistically, how much should you play and why should you choose this amount? And like, it's things that we just do as poker players, but don't really put much thought into like, what's the why? Why why am I doing it this way? Is there a better way for me? Um, And then coming up with a strategy. You'd think guys that come up with strategies all day long would uh, (laughs) be comfortable with coming up strategies of how they manage their lives but it just kind of uh, falls through the cracks sometimes. What's something people would be surprised that you're horrible at? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> what am I horrible at? People would be surprised. I'm not sure if people would be surprised, but I'm pretty emotional. Most people don't know about it. And I think it is because uh, my emotions are primarily triggered by myself, not like by other people. It's not like other people can evoke my emotions that much, but more myself, basically. So although I, I usually come across collected and very structured, and I am, I also, I also do have a strong emotional or I have a desire to basically feel my emotions and and and... And that's and that's something I'm still working on to like improve on that basically. But I'm I'm a pretty emotional person when it comes to, um, you know, work like being in my own head essentially. Like the way I think about myself, the way I think about the the world, my place in the world, like what I'm doing, if I'm using my time the right way. I have a lot of these thoughts, and they are usually productive. Um, but. Uh, they can also be emotional, right? They can be emotional in the sense that you're you have anxiety, you don't really know um, if you're living your your life the best way possible, the way you should be living it. Uh, if you you know, in order to not feel regrets, essentially. So I spent a, a good amount of time in in that mental met my in in that mental headspace, and uh, that's also something I'm working in in the mental game coaching on on directing and and clearing up on those thoughts in the right way because they are important and productive thoughts, but you also want to make sure that you you have them in a productive and positive, with a productive and positive attitude. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that like just having awareness of this being a struggle <laughs> means that you're probably much farther along in the game than most human beings, right? 
Um, because we're emotional creatures. That's just, that's just the reality of life. Human beings are emotional and learning how to, you know, we're born with emotions, but we often don't take the time to understand what they are and what they're doing and, you know, their place in our existence, which is actually pretty sad to me that folks are just kind of pulled around randomly throughout their lives without even understanding like what's happening. Why is this, why am I feeling this way? Why is this a thing occurring? Um, so yeah, I, I think you're farther ahead in the game, uh, you know, than, than the average person. It's such a worthy investment of time and energy, just understanding why we do the things we do and like asking questions, is this the best way to go about this? Like this, it's a question that's just like not asked frequently enough, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, one of the exercises I'm doing right now, for example, is to uh, try to label my emotions on an ongoing basis. Okay, I feel something right now or later, and I'm trying to label it. Is it uh, fear? Is it uh, sadness? Is it you're tired? What is it exactly? Trying to pinpoint it down. <clears throat> because only if you can label it, you can really have a dialogue in your head about, okay, why do you feel this emotion which you labeled X, Y, Z? And as you said, I think most people, they, they just realize that they are, there's something, there's some thought, some emotion going on, <clears throat> but they can't really identify what it is and how to um, fix it or work through it. And it starts with the labeling because they don't even know what that emotion actually is. And what's crazy about this is like, I thought, uh, I thought about Elliot Rowe because he, you know, he talked about his plane experience, his fear of flying and how he overcame that through hypnotherapy. It's, it's crazy that you mentioned labeling emotions specifically, because this is a thing I've been thinking a lot about. Like when I feel ang- anxious, like, where does that come from? Where do I feel it? Like, I feel it in my chest. You know, I'm, I'm understanding, like, what is this feeling of fear? Um, where am I feeling it? What does it mean? And I, I had the thought just maybe a week ago of Elliot and going to hypnotherapy and why that was successful for him. And I don't know. This is, I'm just purely speculating here. I could be totally wrong. But when he was a kid, his, his dad's partner died in a plane crash. And what happened, you know, I imagine that his family was suffering, feeling a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain. And he equated that feeling, he labeled it as a child of fear, a fear of flying. That was how he processed it. And it wasn't until like later on when he did his hypnotherapy session and they investigated that and he realized like, oh, that's not actually fear. Um, That's just, that's pain, that's sorrow, that's suffering. That it was like, this fear of flying kind of disappeared into thin air because it was like a mislabeling of what he experienced when he was three years old. And like, I could just see that happening to so many children across the world experiencing something without understanding exactly what it is. And then going through life, labeling that feeling something that it actually isn't. And then the harm that that can cause as we go on. I mean, it probably happens in every single human being on the planet. That's brilliant. That, that, the mislabeling there in the example. It's uh, when you mentioned labeling and emotions, I was like, oh yeah, I had a thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a thing to talk about. Um, man, it's been great having you on these couple of episodes and spending this time with you. Um, I really hope that the forces align for us to work together in the future. I would really, really, really love that. And um, final question here again, from last time, 
Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? I'm doing currently a lot of streaming on Twitch at JNS Poker, playing Pot Limit Omaha there, tournaments, cash games. You'll also find some of that content on YouTube at JNS Poker. We have like highlight, highlight episodes. I'm also reviewing right now some like 100, 200, 200, 400 games that are, run, that are running on GG. So I'm making like educational, high stakes analysis videos on YouTube as well. And obviously, if you want to take that a step further and learn about PLO, then the PLO Mastermind is, is the course we have. We actually just onboarded and introduced a mental game coach to the roster. So we have now four PLO coaches that are all playing PLO professionally for five years plus plus now a dedicated mental game coach that is doing weekly content only for that side. Because as we, we realized in the last two episodes, the mental game is basically everything. And so I'm very happy to, to finally make that step. And if you want to transition to PLO, seek out this guy. This is the guy in PLO for sure. You cannot go wrong by uh, buying this dude's stuff and consuming his content. Um, Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Have a great rest of your day. And like I said, let's do this again real soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.